नमस्ते सुमेधा जी नमस्ते अनुराधा जी वी आर ग्लैड टू हैव यू हियर ऑन बिहाफ ऑफ इंद्रिका आई थिंक द टाइम इज ऑलरेडी सेवन टू पी एम वुड रिक्वेस्ट अनुजी टू चेक चार्ज ओवर टू यू अनुजी थैंक यू डिम्पल Namaste my name is Anuradha Goyal I run a travel blog called indytales.com where we try to show you India that hopefully nobody else shows you uh today uh thanks to Indic Academy uh we are chatting with Sumedha Ojha and uh, let me first introduce her to you uh Sumedha Ojha ji was a bureaucrat or rather is a bureaucrat and uh, that means she passed all those tough exams which we all were scared of and uh, but she gave that up uh, or maybe not really but she gave that up to study sanskrit to study prakrit and within that to study gender and uh, she's written a beautiful book called ornavi which is about a ganika who is also a spy in the at the time of uh, mauryans when chandragupta uh, maurya was just taking over from nandas and you know the whole bureaucracy is in transition and at the loyalties cannot be trusted it's a beautiful story go and read it and then she has translated ramayan and uh, that too with the lovely uh, illustrations from jagat singh ramayan or mewar ramayan as we know it and uh, you know uh, what uh, what interests me about sumedha ji is that she uh, she doesn't study uh, past just like a historian but she also tries to see the relevance of the past to present which is very important which is probably the whole purpose of reading history that we don't repeat the same mistake or we don't reinvent the same wheel that that has already existed or or know of things that our ancestors have already done and start building from there so which is which is the most intriguing part of sumedha ji for me and of course uh, she may have left bureaucracy but bureaucracy hasn't left her so in her writings you can see that uh, she has an eye for tracing the bureaucratic structure of the environment which is there so we are going with that we uh, you know we welcome sumedha ji for this conversation and uh, say hi to everybody before i start asking questions and everybody please join us join me in asking her questions we'll try to take as many as possible towards the end of this uh, chat dhanyawad for that introduction namaste to everyone i'm really happy to be here i am at the moment in rome doing something uh, which is my bureaucratic part and it's just lovely to be in touch with everyone regarding something which is the passion in my life so thank you very much and i hope you enjoy this conversation between anuradha and me great so um, you know uh, let me ask you uh, something you know uh, so whatever little i know about history you know i of course didn't study in the school textbook it didn't happen then i started traveling and i started discovering history and uh, every time i discovered something new i said why did they not teach this to me in the school okay uh, and i'm sure most of us have asked that but then it's kept happening just too often and after a point i said uh, they couldn't have taught all this to me in the school it's just too much uh, to be you know packed in small school uh, textbooks uh, and then i started reading historical fiction and lot of pieces started getting together now i know it is fiction but the the setting used to be as real as possible or you know it's very difficult to make up where is fact and where is fiction uh, it but it does fill in gaps so my first question is to the historian in you 
and i want to know what is the role of historical fiction um in filling the gaps that the history leaves and uh, you know what are the various sources so if today i want to go and study history where should i go where should i begin what are the sources of history so that's a wonderful way to begin because my passion is history i have studied economics i have studied sociology i have done a lot of things but my passion remains history the problem in india is that history as such is not given any importance in our schools colleges curriculum but for our daily lives for our humanity for our country for our own knowledge of ourselves it's really important everyone wants to know about history but no one has read it in school one because our syllabus is uh, organized in such a way that it doesn't give us a good idea of our history two something that you said that we are a huge complex very very uh, ancient country it's not easy to compress things into any one little module having said that it is my opinion that the way we study history is very north and west centered the east of the country and the south of the country are kind of lost i have always loved history yet i must say that i have discovered the cholas only say about 10 years ago Same because there's no emphasis no emphasis on the cholas on the empire of the of the uh, where odisha is today the maritime history of india a lot is missing we need to change that but in till we change that yes historical fiction has a role to play i hope that uh, the books i write i have started with the morrens this series will cover the morrens the satvahanas then uh, it will also uh, go on to the sungas so it is about say 5 600 years of history that part of history in which india was being made it is my wish that people who write historical fiction should take up different subjects and should start writing about all those things which we miss in our history books now i know that someone has written a book about the cholas i have not read it myself so i cannot really say but then we have the immortal kalki and his uh, ponni and selvan series so anyone who wants to know about the cholas and they read ponni and selvan they've got a lot of it already because he puts in history culture music religion life everything so kalki is a master he is one of my inspirations apart from acharya chatur sen kalki is one of my inspirations now as to your other question about what should we read if you really want to know about history that's a very difficult one to answer because i would not really i find it difficult to recommend something very strongly but i will give you a few a few pointers to the people who are here sanjeev sanyal's books offer a very good insight especially into ancient and early medieval india so i would really recommend his books especially ocean of churn then you have ibrahim irali ibrahim irali has written a series of books he starts with the morians he goes on till the mughal empire i would also recommend those books then you have the bhartiya vidya bhavan series they are a little old fashioned history has moved on but still basically they are good and you can get them all on archive.org so you know it's easy to access for anyone who wants it you can get all of it on archive.org there it's 10 volumes so don't read everything pick out the period you want and read that bit again i mean i know she is not popular but for ancient india you cannot skip romila thapar ignore hmm. her ideology read the facts that she collects i hmm. started from so uh, and in the meanwhile as anuradha and i have discussed if you want to read something we'll have to write it so wait for the books that we write <laughs> 
<laughs> okay. So the next question, um, I'll move on to uh, to the subject of the chat to the women. You know. So, uh, you know, whatever little I have read in history, uh, it is very difficult to find women, especially in the ancient, uh, in the ancient literature. And you have read a lot of history and a lot of ancient literature. Okay. So I want to ask you, and, and I know your forthcoming book is on women in India, in ancient India. So I want to know, uh, without really uh, skipping buying your book, I want to know, uh, how do you discover these gender roles in uh, ancient literature where uh, there is nothing which is, you know, so there is no book which says we the women of first century CE or 600 BCE. So there's nothing like that. So how do you go about finding, uh, you know, or churning out that information out of this ocean? So, discussion uh, before, and uh, the interesting part is that it started out as a very personal journey for me. I am the daughter of a very strong and accomplished woman and the granddaughter of an even more accomplished woman who was a doctor in the 40s. So I never thought that, you know, there's any issue with women doing whatever they wanted to do. However, I studied in the same schools and colleges that everyone else did. The theoretical inputs that I got about women, Indic women, women in India, was very different from the reality that I was living. So that was, it was uh, uh, something which I wanted to explore. Mm -hmm. And I started reading. So I was a bit precocious, I guess, because I started with the Ramcharit Manas when I was 10 years old. And I went on to the Achtas when I was 12 years old. Although at that time I read it in English, of course, not in Sanskrit. That Sanskrit bit came much later. So what happened was that I read uh, Sanskrit scriptures, poetry, and I uh, read a lot of law the law, uh, Hindu law as it pertained to uh, women and their daily lives. And I found that things are very different from what mm -hmm. my uh, teacher in school or college would have had me believe. So mm -hmm. then it became a very normal thing to look at everything through the mm -hmm. eyes of gender. You know, for instance, you can read, uh, say, uh, Swapna Vasvadatta of Haas mm -hmm. or... Mm -hmm. Or you can read any of them as a story, as an mm -hmm. interesting story. However, you can also read it and try mm -hmm. to understand what women of that period were like. The mm -hmm. good thing is that today, these kind of interdisciplinary studies, where literary, archaeological remains, epigraphy, numismatics, all these things are coming together, and there is an interdisciplinary attempt to recover the voices of Indian women. The book mm -hmm. that you are of, which is tentatively called The Modern Women of Ancient India and it is forthcoming from Roli Books, hopefully this year, is my attempt to understand women in the Varn, Ashram, Purusharth complex, which is mm -hmm. the way Indian society is structured. Mm -hmm. So what each of the four Purusharths, were they mm -hmm. available? That is the question that I'm exploring. Mm -hmm. And uh, well, uh, right now it's a work in progress. So as and when the book comes out, we will be able to arrive at some conclusion as to whether self-realization and uh, the, you know, to do whatever they wanted, was it possible for women? And to what extent was it possible? <laughs> okay, so uh, 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 a subsequent question to this is that you can do that uh, any subject, you know, it could be, uh, it could be, uh, let's say, fashion in, in ancient India over time. It could, 
I write on fashion and engineering. I know. <laughs> That's why the question. So, um, you know, so but it could be anything. It could be it could be women. It could be kids. It could be LGBT. It could be anything. You know. But my question is more about: Is it just you just read whatever is available and th- discover the pattern in that, or is there a is there a systematic way where you can go and discover the subject that you want to study within the ancient literary works? So I think here, Anuradha, one mm-hmm. will have to discover patterns mm-hmm. because what is being done today to recover not just uh, women's voices but indigenous women's voices. Mm-hmm. The indigenous voice, you know, uh, has been lost for men, women, anyone. The Indian mm-hmm. voice has been lost for many mm-hmm. centuries. Mm-hmm. We have to recover the Indic voice. As I happen to be an Indic woman, it's natural that my mm-hmm. voice is the Indic woman's voice. Mm-hmm. But there is, however, I can say that amongst a few historians, a few literary women, and uh, some academics, there is a very concerted effort mm-hmm. to do this kind of thing. And uh, there are a few historians, not all of them based in India, but some of them, who mm-hmm. have come out with some very good books. Mm-hmm. Recovering Indic women's voices and recovering indigenous voices and indigenous ways of looking at things. Mm-hmm. So no, you will not be able to at the moment read something. I can offer a few, you know, for example, a book called The Jewels of Authority, edited by Laurie Patton. That's mm-hmm. a very good example mm-hmm. of the way indigenous women's voices are being rediscovered, reading those same plays, those same scriptures, the same Rigved, the same Brihataranya Upanishad that everyone else was reading all the time. But it's mm. being read in a different way. So mm. you are, for me, the patterns are slowly becoming clear. I can't mm. say that they are fully clear yet. But mm. reading is making those uh, patterns clearer and clearer. Right. So it's like, go on reading and you'll finally discover the pattern. It's a matter of discovery, yes. It's a matter of finding, discovering it. And not yes. really, um, but hopefully somebody, some of us will create a structure, yes. making it easier for the next generations to read it. This book of mine is definitely an attempt to do that, Anuradha. Right. So I've right. been working very hard and there are already many iterations of the basic thrust of the book. Great. We are all looking forward to that. Uh, okay. So, so Medaji, next question is this, that, um, you know, we, uh, when I think of, uh, you know, uh, women of ancient India, uh, you know, immediately the women mentioned in two of our epics, the Itihasas, uh, they come to mind. We at least know majority of them if not all of them you know they are a part of our everyday lingo you know when we call somebody sita we know what we are referring to when we call somebody draupadi what we know what we are referring to so we have some uh, sense of these women in the epics but i think most of us has never heard of women in vedas or the vedic corpus you know so i i know there were female rishis I know there were, um, you know, very accomplished rishis and, you know, even a lot of wives of these rishis had an important role to play. But I think like most Indians, it will be difficult for me to even take more than two names. Okay, so those women are literally invisible, you know. So I want to know, first of all, uh, are there women? And if they are there, what kind of women are they? So, for example, in epics, we know that there are women who are queens and uh, who are uh, princesses and who have a role in the story to play. Uh, You know, we know how they behave. We know what they wear. So I want to know, I have the same query about the women in Vedas and what what kind of women are they? What is their contribution? 
Okay. If you can put some light on that. Yes, yes, I This is one of the main thrusts of the book that I'm writing and in general my own interest in reading about women from the past. The interesting thing is, Anuradha, that when you read this, you know, they strike an immediate chord. Mm -hmm. It doesn't feel as though you are reading about some ossified past, some very dead person. You know, you can actually identify with so much. There are mm -hmm. rebellious teenage women, there are wives, there are girlfriends, there are rishis, there are brahmavadinis, there are princesses, there, there are queens. There are all these whole gamut of societal roles reflected. You mm -hmm. spoke about the rishis. Mm -hmm. It is uh, a matter of some controversy because some people say there are 23 women rishis mentioned in the Rigved, but there are two uh, schools of thought and they fight with each other a lot. So you mm -hmm. know what happens with these controversies. But we can go by 20 odd because they fight about two, three interpretations. So there are 23 uh, or 20 odd women rishis mentioned in the Rigved. Lopa Mudra, a lot of people know about. Right. Then, uh, yes. But then there are also so many others. And again, I would say read my book because this is going to be one of the basic things that I'm talking about. And the question here is of the types of women you said. My hmm. interest is in the Brahmavadinis, the Rishis, hmm. the women who devoted their lives to seeking knowledge and to then imparting knowledge. And they had their own ashrams. They had their own followers. And they were uh, very, very revered and they were looked on upon as society's thought leaders other than can that you, can you can you start by defining who brahmavadinis were because i'm sure most most of us do not know okay so let me start with the uh, whole question of the of um, the Janeu. so mm. what the Janeu, as we understand it today unfortunately it is seen as a mark of caste but it was not, and it did not begin as a mask, as a caste mark. It began as a mark that now your education has begun. Mm -hmm. And during the times of the Rig Ved, and if you read, for instance, specifically, especially the Krishna Yajur Ved, you mm -hmm. will get a lot of references to how both boys and girls should be educated. They should be sent to the Gurukul. And by the way, there were also co-ed Gurukuls at the time. So mm -hmm. you could send your daughter to a co-ed Gurukul also if you wished. Mm -hmm. And there were also single-sex Gurukuls. So uh, you would send that uh, girl slash boy to a Gurukul. In the earliest days, they would return at the age of 16. And after returning at the age of 16, then they would mm -hmm. enter the Ashram. However, mm -hmm. there were some women who decided not to enter the Ashram. Mm -hmm. These were the Brahmavadinis. They decided to devote their lives. They were mm -hmm. Brahmacharya. Brahmacharinis and they decided to devote their lives to knowledge mm -hmm. and we have some excellent examples of uh, Brahmavadini such as Sulabha mm -hmm. one who's famous whose dialogue with uh, Raja Janak is really famous she beat him in a Shastrat she beat mm -hmm. him fair and square and uh, she said such things which uh, he just could not answer so mm -hmm. she is a very famous example of a Brahmavadini but I also want mm -hmm. to note over here that Grihastashram did not stop women from devoting their lives to knowledge. Mm -hmm. And uh, there is the example of uh, uh, Maitre, hmm. who was the wife of Yagyavalki. Hmm. She wanted a life of knowledge and she asked him to impart wisdom to her. He mm -hmm. imparted wisdom to her and then he went off, he you know, kind of left his two wives after some time. He left Grihastashram and went off and so did mm -hmm. she. 
he also went off to look for wisdom whereas mm-hmm. his other wife decided to, to stay and enjoy the riches that yagyawal had left for her mm-hmm. my point here is that there was a whole you know uh, there was a plethora of roles you could choose from nothing mm-hmm. was really stopped for you so uh, brahmavadinis are a very important and perhaps forgotten uh, category of women but remember that there was a time when there is a morning hymn and mm-hmm. that morning hymn mentions three or four women rishis whose names you should take every day mm-hmm. so that was the situation at the time and today we tend to think that uh, women were not there in the knowledge area at all the rigveda mm-hmm. tells us that women were there in each aspect whether it is politics a grihastashram domesticity or whether it is uh, studies knowledge women were there in every and they were also warriors and spies and politicians uh, what about the uh, the literature that women created you know so uh, you know we know the most of the authors that we hear of most of the scriptures we usually hear a male name except maybe theri gathas where we know which were like specifically done by bhikkhunis so uh, what do you, what would you say about uh, the contribution of women to literature 23 24 women rishis are mm-hmm. counted as rishis because there are certain uh, verses that they have composed mm-hmm. those verses are there in the rigveda okay so that is why they are they are uh, re- recognized as uh, women rishis so you have uh, of course uh, you have ghosha Mm-hmm. there and of course you have lopa mudra lopa mudra who is a very shining and brilliant example of a brahmavadini who again but then she fell in love with agastya and she kind of insisted mm-hmm. that he marry her mm-hmm. so she fell in love with him and she decided that she wants to marry him which you know, also that, tells us that that was also allowed you could choose to change your decision at any point in time i would love to actually just bring in savitri sati mm-hmm. savitri is seen today as the ultimate example of domesticity if you actually read her story she was a really very uh, she was a person who just went after what she wanted she saw satyavan she fell in love with him and she decided i am going to have this man no matter what she fought with her father she fought with her preceptors she fought with yam and i'm sorry satyavan is the ultimate bimbo <laughs> you know he doesn't have any agency the savitri is this sparkling brilliant girl who has fallen in love with him and he just you know organizes his life as she wants him to organize it so you see there were women who who had what is a very favorite word today agency because mm-hmm. women are said to have been denied agency the more i read the less i believe this mm-hmm. great that's very interesting so let me ask you a little light hearted question you know so when i you know like i said i've discovered most of india and its history through my travels and you know when i whenever i'm traveling and i see these beautiful temples you know and the all the all the sculptures and structures in stone something that's the only thing that has survived over centuries over eras i always wonder you know if i could go back in history and see them in their full glory you know when they were not broken when they were not uh, destroyed when they were painted they had the stories written on them and they were lively you know there was a puja going on and there was a social life going around in those places so i always want to go back to 11th century you know this is this was the time when uh, cholas were building their temples chandelas were building their temples the solankis were building i would have probably missed konark but everything else would be pretty much there and um, you know so everything that needed to be built has been built and uh, uh, it, and in, in its full glory so if i could time travel i want to go to 11th century probably the first half of 11th century 
Um, so as a woman, you know, because you have studied so much about women in ancient India, tell me where and which part of the historical era of India would you like to be born as a woman? <laughs> I mean, I'm okay with this century as well. <laughs> I'm not doing too bad, but uh, where uh, would you I like to go back? to be there as a Chola princess. And you know, the Chola princesses and queens were absolutely in the forefront in building those beautiful temples and getting those cultures carved. But I'm afraid I'll have to plump for the Mauryans. Okay. I call myself a kind of, uh, you know, unofficial ambassador from the court of Chandragupta Maurya. And mm -hmm. that is where I would have liked to be born. You know, because of my lifelong fascination with the Arthashastra, with women's spies. So I kind of fancy myself as a women's spy in the pay of Chanakya, like my protagonist. And I would like to go back to, you know, that was a time when the Indian subcontinent was being forged as we know it today. The political unity in the Indian subcontinent, the way that India is today, a multi-regional, multi-linguist, mm -hmm. and a complete uh, small gas board of people. Mm -hmm. The Mauryan Empire was the first one which was like that, Jambudweep. Mm -hmm. So it, it was a time when things were being forged. Mm -hmm. I agree that we don't have any surviving temples, etc. of the time, you know, because they used wood. Right. Most of the time they used wood and it was perishable. Right. Right. And uh, Mauryan art and Chola art, I would plump for Chola art any day. I do not disagree with that. But mm -hmm. I think I fancy myself as uh, somebody who would go off. And you know, the Mauryans were great traders. So I, I fancy myself going to Garhao. I fancy myself going to Jambukola in Sri Lanka. So I think that as a bureaucrat, I would love to be a kind of a female James Bond of the Mauryan era. <laughs> Okay, and uh, you know, since you study a lot of uh, past from the from its relevance perspective, so tell us the what is the relevance of the Mauryan time for current times? Okay, that's actually that is something which really drives me. I started reading things not just okay. I love the past. I'll have to agree with that. I must confess, but then you know, I feel that we are at the cusp of a very confusing time, which is going to come in front of us. We have to decide what is the way to take. What are the things to do? Where do we look for role models? Where do we look for answers? Today, I think we are all pretty confused about where to look for answers. I find that the past is a good place to look for answers. And by that, I do not mean any kind of slavish adherence to tradition. What I mean is look there, see what helps. Is there something in the past that you can bring to the present? And as far as women are concerned, attitudes towards women are concerned, roles open to women are concerned. I feel that the modern period, again, you know, it was a period of great, everything was being built. It was a period of great construction, social construction, the construction mm -hmm. of the the construction of politics. So mm -hmm. society was also being constructed. Mm -hmm. Old things were being broken and new things were coming into place. Mm -hmm. And that newness, which I perceive when I read about the Mauryans, mm -hmm. I find the same kind of parallel today. And I don't know how we're going to look at AI and connected to the Mauryans, but I tell you, I'm going to do it. <laughs> okay, uh, let me ask you another um, of your favorite uh, things from the past. Uh, you uh, bring in a lot of uh, Shringaras, you know, so you talk about fashion, you talk about costumes, you go on and on about jewelry designs. And, you know, every time you, uh, your, your Nika or your heroine steps in, uh, you describe her from, you know, top to bottom and describe everything. 
so i and i i don't know how it easy or difficult it is to write it in a language which is not sanskrit uh, because sanskrit has as uh, you know has that uh, it, it it says the shringar in the best possible way so uh, i am going to ask you how uh, so I, I, from my previous question i am going to derive this question and say how do we get that shringar ras in our current writing that's a very very question radha at so many different levels see because i write in english but i think in hindi and i understand in sanskrit as i am the very sad poor product of maculae's education i cannot write a book in sanskrit probably not in hindi maybe in hindi i can but i i cannot write a book in sanskrit that is my tragedy so i have kind of cross wires in my brain Mm-hmm. and those cross wires are extremely difficult to get over sometimes you know in the first chapter of this book there is a the first time the heroine comes as a little description of what she's wearing mm-hmm. and a hair you know it took me two months to write that because in the beginning i knew nothing of uh, ancient styles i had to learn that then i had to learn the language then i had to put it in a kind of english which everyone can understand but by the time i am through with english it's going to become a sanskritized language that's what i'm going to try and do and i don't know if uh, uh, any of you keeps up with rajiv malhotra but one of the interesting things he said that uh, you know maybe all of us can try and do that sanskrit is the original you know indian language original indo european language english is one of the children one of the latest children so we can perhaps use english in a way and sanskritize it in a way to reflect our own ethos i'll just tell you a small anecdote here i have a, a book readings in different places so i had a book reading in rome where there were a number of uh, there were there was an international crowd so there were some english women there were some japanese women so the english women almost accused me of murdering their language mm-hmm. and they asked me why do you write in this very you know highly emotional over descriptive and uh, very uh, you know overblown kind of way so i had to explain to them that you know this is what i'm like this is what india indians this is what indic writing is like we are emotional we do connect we connect with nature we connect with each other things are not dull and placid and stiff upper lip for us life is a very very you know active thing life is a very very involving thing celebratory thing the celebratory thing or sad or whatever so it's we are emotional therefore i will write emotionally and the two japanese women who were there came up to me at the end of the talk and said we identify with what you write we identified completely with what you write and we kind of saw some japanese means and we saw some japanese figures also in the background in what you wrote so you see there is this there is an indic export to a lot of countries which we have lost now i mean we lost the link but somewhere in the cultural ethos of those countries this is still alive so it is not the same as writing in sanskrit let's just you know put it out there it's not the same it cannot be the same it will never be the same but uh, i do try and use a lot of sanskrit words if my publisher is listening to this she will be very upset with <laughs> they're telling me not to use so many sanskrit words and i use sentence construction which does not belong to english so <laughs> it is in the nature of an experiment and that experiment is not appreciated by you know a few people don't like it like they say that this is not the way english should be written but it's for me it's the only way i can express my stories right right uh, but i was looking for some tips for people who do not get Uh, shringar ras in english 
or any other language other than sanskrit uh, could you repeat that uh, can you give some tips for uh, uh, getting the shringar ras or any ras for that matter uh, into a writing uh, when they are not writing in sanskrit or hindi or or any of the indian languages because indian language is pretty much captured the first one would be the same thing that i said the try and use some sanskrit words mm-hmm. or otherwise then take the concept break it up into its constituent parts and look for words to describe it so okay. i had to do this once because i was trying to describe the way the heroine was standing and i used one sanskrit word which mm-hmm. was not accepted by my publisher so to explain that i had to write one paragraph okay so Break it up into it into its constituent parts and explain all of them in as you know lyrical and flowing a language as you can. Okay, and what would you say about the journey of Shringar or you know that whole notion? How has the journey of it been from the times, uh, let's say, Mauryan times till till now? Have we lost I, I, it? Have we enhanced it? Have we changed it? Lost it. we've lost it and you know i have often thought about it singar mm-hmm. is one of the ras mm-hmm. and singar ras is not the uh, overpowering ras of the times it is maybe vibhats ras mm-hmm. we like uh, we like you know strange things vichitra vibhats mm-hmm. for everything we want something strange even if it's a love story it, a simple love story with singar ras will not appeal to people it does mm-hmm. not appeal there has to be something strange so i feel that in terms of ras the focus has shifted we have lost shringar ras we need to really bring it back do you remember that movie bahubali and do you remember this scene between the hero and the heroine which was uh, taken uh, as a kind of the hero forcing the heroine to do things that she doesn't want to when he addressed her up she used to dress as a warrior and then he dressed her up as a beautiful woman mm-hmm. so according i don't know how many people have seen the movie but according to me that was an excellent example of shringar ras mm-hmm. but was it perceived as such no it was perceived as near rape which is sacrilege for me mm-hmm. shringar ras is dead anuradha we have to revive the corpse okay <laughs> that calls for another chat i guess okay so now i asked the i asked the question to the historian on in you the person who studies gender studies in history so let me ask a final question before we open it up for everybody uh, on the art of writing you know uh, so art of writing uh, uh, you know what does our ancient scriptures say about art of writing is there a is there a text uh, which tells us how to write uh, and it is relevant uh, when we say that they knew how to write shringar ras and make it appealable to i mean make it uh, what what is the word you know attractive to people and it is still attractive i mean once you start reading it in sanskrit it is still attractive uh, uh, although we don't relate to it but we still enjoy it so are there any texts which talk about art of writing and um, uh, are any simple ones i know you read uh, simple, simple i cannot promise but <laughs> texts definitely are okay so tell us a bit about it in the indic scheme of things indic society a person was known by the way he or she could express themselves so how could you actually uh, you know take uh, put your thoughts in order and express yourself properly was one of the biggest attributes of the arya mm-hmm. the aryan knew how to express himself or herself mm-hmm. 
we find this across the board everywhere whether it is in the valmiki ramayan when shri ram first meets hanuman mm-hmm. what does he notice that hanuman speaks very well and is able to express himself very well and is in english terms a thorough gentleman mm-hmm. that's what then if you look at the arthashastra whenever you have a list of the most desirable qualities in people the first one is that they should be able to express themselves properly either in speech or in writing now as if we come back to texts the basic text that is the natyashastra chapter 14 to 17 deals exactly with this what is the way in which you write what are the you know literary uh, tricks you should use or the literary rules which will make you write properly what mm-hmm. are the different uh, uh, kinds of writing mm-hmm. what are the different ways you should plot how should that plot go everything but i am afraid it is not simple it is highly complex and it is highly technical okay for something simple as in how you should write what i like is the arthashastra the arthashastra has a small section on the scribe the royal scribe and the royal scribe should be able to write in a b c d e ways and those qualities should be there which will mark it out as a proper piece of writing so that perhaps is fairly simple but if you really want to know the art of writing how to touch people's hearts and minds i recommend the natyashastra on writing on writing yes chapter 14 to 17 uh, can you can you talk a little bit about that okay so see what it is uh, the natyashastra is a very comprehensive text so it tells you about what we today understand as music dance song instrument theater speech everything so it deals with everything in a very very organized way so mm-hmm. this is one it starts with all the literary devices that you can use mm-hmm. and then it tells you how you should structure your plot Mm-hmm. what should come first what should come second what should come later then it tells mm-hmm. you that if you have done this then it belongs to this category there are 10 categories of writing mm-hmm. so then depending on whether you written something short five acts that was the size of a normal proper work less mm-hmm. than that went into another category more than five acts went into another category so mm-hmm. uh, but then you know again all these things are very very complex and uh, they are very complex um, sanskrit literary devices words language etc so for that maybe you'll have to translate it into and understand it in your own way if you're writing in english or tamil or kannada or hindi mm-hmm. or whatever but the bits about uh, and in fact i do use it mm-hmm. and there are certain things certain rules about you should not write this you should not do this you should not do that you know for instance uh, if you're writing a play your character should never fall asleep on stage mm-hmm. that's any proscription but there it is and you know that is one of the ways in which we know and there should be no violence mm-hmm. or none at all so mm-hmm. that is how we know that bhas was pre natya shastra because mm-hmm. in his plays people regularly get killed and beaten and there's a lot of blood and gore on the on the stage itself so we know that bhas is pre natya shastra but uh, anyone who really wants to know can get some kind of uh, simple uh, translation of the natya shastra i think one of the indica authors i think dev priya her name is dev priya i'm not sure has done a uh, a simple translation of the natyashastra so okay. anyone who wants to read maybe dimple will be able to tell us she does belong to indica i know and her name is dev priya something and she has worked on the natyashastra 
Okay. I should it, share it with you soon, Anuji and uh, Sumedha ji. Okay. Uh, so, uh, are we back? Yes, we are back. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, uh, let me ask you. So, when you compare these art of writing that was written uh, at least two thousand years ago, at around least. that time, uh, to the to the creative writing classes that we uh, have these days, uh, is there any comparison, <laughs> or is there anything that you can talk about? <laughs> answer on the grounds that the answer will incriminate me and make me many enemies <laughs> i will say nothing about creative writing classes okay absolutely nothing okay. i will I have to make a no comments kind of answer because <laughs> i have a very very poor opinion of them okay that says it all that says that pretty much says it all okay with that um, i will uh, ask uh, everybody who's around here, if they have any questions for Sumedha ji, please type them in now. Or if you want to ask them, please ask them. I can't see any. I can see a lot of people, but is anybody asking question? Hi, Sri Sharda, please uh, ask your question. Sri Sharda ji, you need to unmute yourself or let me do it for you. I still can't hear. Oh, oh yes. Can, Shisha, repeat your question. Can you hear me, ma'am? Yes. 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 Thank you, ma'am. I'm so uh, I am. Uh, there's a lot of rains in Bombay, so I missed coming online earlier because of bad internet. But I'm glad I joined later. I joined from the Brahmavadini section. Uh, ma'am, I'm a dancer. I'm a Bharatanatyam dancer and a dance teacher as well. Uh, wow. Ma'am, I want to know, uh, I read a book uh, written by Lakshmi Vishwanathan ji on uh, women of pride, uh, which is mainly uh, focused on the Devadasis and uh, actually how they were um, really degraded in the society. Uh, Ma'am, I want to know uh, what is uh, your, uh, what do you think about it, about Devadasis and... So, uh, really nice to see you, Sri Sharda. I'm glad you could make it in spite of the rains. And uh, your question is one which ties into my work very strongly because wow. Dasis have uh, the antecedents of Dev Dasis can be traced to the Ganikas yeah. of the past, the Ganikas of the Rigveda. And my protagonist is nothing but a Ganika. Oh. So, Ganikas were they were uh, women who were trained par excellence in all 64 arts, yeah. they were knowledgeable, and they were trained to take on any task that they wanted to take on. They dabbled in politics. They, of course, danced. They were also, uh, it's a very, I don't like to use the word prostitute because that word Actually, is very it's, I think more appropriate to, uh, you know, the art of love is how she describes it in the book. Uh, uh, perhaps art of love, would you see there were three or four categories of these uh, sex workers. Okay. The sex workers who were actually, you know, what we would say sex workers on the street, they were called Roop Jeevas, okay. Roop Jeevikas. So the Roop Jeevikas were prostitutes, but these Ganikas were extraordinary women. Yeah. They were extraordinary women whose arts were honed to extreme perfection. And they were used by the state, they were used by many other uh, important arms of the state to further at their own ends. So they had prestige, money, power, everything. And they were anything but degraded. 
they were part of the most prestigious section of society and the same is true of the devdasi tradition as it started you know the chola period which yeah. i am so proud of and which i think is one of the most beautiful periods of indian history yeah. so the devdasis were absolutely in a beautiful position i think the problem is for our country we have a tortured history of invasion yes of empire and of the gaze of the other on our institutions which perverts those institutions right. Right. so the institution of the devadasi one was a bit perverted and two for various colonial and missionary interests there was a lot of exaggeration right they did not understand the role the independence the uh, the uh, position of the devadasi was not as the missionaries or the colonial people would have you understand it was very and they could not understand that single independent sexually liberated women yeah. could live inside society and be appreciated or be a part of society so you know there are a lot of political and social and outside factors also acting on this but i don't i have not read the book you speak of but if she has uh, tried to rehabilitate uh, the concept of devdasi that's a wonderful thing. thank you ma'am thank you so much um Anybody else? Uh, you have a question. Do ask. Please feel free to ask. I have no question. I'm Devi here. I have no question. I'm just want to make a comment. Uh, thank you both. Oh, one of the most informative interview that I heard so far, and the questioner and the answerer, if I may say so, uh, so brilliant and sparkling. You enjoy your thing. It is such a lovely hour that I spent. Thank you uh, very much. <laughs> yeah, and I really love that. Uh, uh, I, I I can see in the audience here predominantly a lot of women. Unless I suppose Satyavan and bimbo-like people are not too many. <laughs> so I'm telling you, you read the Mahabharata, and Satyavan really comes through as nothing but a bimbo. <laughs> well, now that you said it, I can't read Mahabharata or Itihas the same way. I'll start classifying whether he's a bimbo or not. Thank you. That's a great takeaway. And Anuradha, you, you played. You're such a good interlocutor, and you. Bring out the best in the person being interviewed, and I think we thank got so much. <laughs> particularly extracted so much from Swetaji, and I thank you very much. And Dimple, of course, what a wonderful evening! Thank you, Dimple. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for encouraging us. <laughs> Thanks, Didi. Basudaji, are you trying to ask us a question? Basudha Rameshji. No, she says no. says no but she can if she wants or if anyone has a comment that's also welcome hi are you asking us a question yes uh, okay go ahead sai ah uh, okay so uh, my question is about uh, the uh, difference in storytelling techniques between uh, the indic uh, difference between indic storytelling and the western storytelling which uh, pretty much seems to dominate the indic storytelling also nowadays uh, because we as uh, aspiring writer 
I see that something has to be compromised when when I go index, uh, say the the descriptions. I have to compromise with face, and when I have to go with face, a lot of index descriptions get compromised. So how do we achieve a balance so that the reader gets the reader gets the imagery of the world as well as is not bored with nothing happening i would I, add to that question of sai i would say uh, it's not just east versus west it is also the time you know we have so much to consume so we don't have time to read descriptions which we don't see in real life see when i when i read sumedha ji's work uh these beautiful descriptions you know and i have at least seen them in sculpture while most of the readers may not even have seen them in sculptures so it is very um, disconnecting you know and of course the pace of our lives have changed you know from from 2000 years ago to now the pace of our lives have really really changed uh yeah sumedha ji thank you sir thank you and very nice to see you i think uh, the pace of life has changed and we have to live life the way it is today so perhaps what we need to do is uh, you know one i feel write so many books in the index setting that everyone will start taking the setting for granted and we will not have to give any descriptions anuradha why do you think i had to describe clothes and jewelry so much because nobody has the slightest idea about right. what wear and what uh, they look like right so i think that one uh, problem would disappear size swarupa if a lot of us write a lot on the subject and the setting becomes familiar now take a genre which is very 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 popular take regency romances now i myself i'm a great fan of georgette eyre so regency romances are a very typical example today when a person writes a regency romance she can use one word to conjure up an entire image simply because it's extremely common everyone knows it for us for the same thing we have to write 100 words maybe we have to write a page so right now i think if you want to keep the pace some kind of shortening of the description will be necessary but i am hoping that all of us will join together and create that critical mass when writing down each detail of that setting will not be important now in my first book i have done a lot of physical uh, setting description in my second book i think it will be very very substantially less because i expect that people already know a lot of things what architecture was like what clothes were like what food was like so i expect to this to become less and less so i expect this problem to disappear i mean optimistically speaking many of us are in this area and in this genre so optimistically speaking all our works will feed into each other the descriptions mm -hmm. feed into each other and they will reach the reader's mind and we will need to spend less uh, you know pen and ink on it that's what i can think of and uh, asked to choose i think i would not uh, uh, give up on pace because that's important you wouldn't think it to see all my descriptions of jewelry but i do think that pace is important mm -hmm. and you oh, should because i have a single dull moment in your uh, book uh, <laughs> I and I'm, I'm hoping size for Rupa that the next one will be an even bigger page turner. It will be. It will be. We know that. Sure. <laughs> We know that. Anybody else has a question? I can see a lot of people. If you have a question, please 
this is your time before uh, may I have another turn please yes yes sir yes sir please yeah I, I was wondering I was going to ask uh, Sumedha ji whether the description of the Ganika from there I was wondering whether she is the forerunner of the modern day uh, Japanese geishas they seem to have uh, multivarious arts they were trained to be society women not just mistresses I mean, where the, did the Japanese borrow a lot from our past and model the geishas on the yes. ganikas? Yes, yes, you are absolutely right. And in fact, uh, for a lot of people to, ex to explain the concept of ganika, I do use this Japanese geisha concept very often. And it is also true that uh, a lot of uh, Indic export of culture was done to Japan. And a lot of it has stayed there. Some of the things that we have lost still exists. In Japan and they still understand it and they still uh, use it of course not geishas but yes uh, and uh, not only this the Greek concept of the hetere that was also very similar so I I think that you know we are living in today's morality and we have a pejorative view of prostitutes and sex workers and what have you this has not been true across the sweep of society I uh, sorry history women have been have used their sexuality in many ways. Today, we look down upon it. It was not necessary that a woman's use of her sexuality was looked down upon in all societies. In modern society, definitely not. They've been colonized out. <laughs> yes. Our, our own concepts of ourselves have been completely colonized and changed. And especially women's sexuality, which is celebrated in the Indic tradition, mm. which is... Uh, which and the female body is the apogee of Indian art of Indian sculpture. Yep. But uh, we are well the products of invasion and colonialism, etc., etc. So all we have layers of these, and it is one of my attempts to strip away these layers and Beautiful. get to the Indic heart of the way we looked at women. A woman is also a sexual being, so her use of sexuality does not necessarily have anything pejorative about it. It is not that, you know, woman as temptation is a Christian concept and also to an extent a Buddhist concept. Gautam Buddha was also very strong on women being very tempting and, uh, you know, uh, all the monks should stay away from women. He didn't want women to become nuns, by the way. It was only when Anand begged him that he agreed and he said, Buddhism is going to die out because women have joined it. Otherwise, it would have lasted forever. So Gautam Buddha was no uh, pro-woman uh, person as he's made out to be. Buddhists also tended to think of women as temptations. The Indic tradition has never thought of men as the basic uh, inheritors of the tradition and women as something extra who's tempting them. Men and women together are given various uh, opportunities and choices in life and in death. The four Purusharths are open to everyone. And uh, if a woman is a temptation to a man, so is a man a temptation to a woman? And that is very much understood in the Indic tradition. Right. We are goddess worshippers, after all. Exactly. Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I just have a small point to add. You know, we, we have this very, um, uh, uh, we have a habit of saying colonists did this to us, that to us, you know, but you have to understand it from their perspective. This is how they understood what they saw and they have written it. It's our problem that we lost our connect with our past. You know, the way we can understand our past, uh, including our languages, you can't expect anybody else to understand. They are going to understand it from the reference point of what they know. 
I completely I agree. Right. So, so we we have to re-establish that con- connect the that we had. Completely ours, and especially today, who's right. stopping us from understanding everything? Absolutely. Properly? Who's uh, who's stopping us? You know, just yesterday I was reading an article at BBC, and it said five cultures that define the culture in the world, and none of the Eastern Hemisphere cultures were there. You know, so. Uh, and and you know the readership of bbc so you know do i blame them or do i blame us i blame us you know who's stopping us from creating another bbc like website and writing our point of point presenting our uh, richness to the and world. i think and rather isn't that exactly that what both of us try to do we try to you know kind of give people the tools and instruments so that they can reevaluate everything and arrive at an indic understanding absolutely absolutely i have discovered india through my travels and travel writing I am also a product of CPSC textbooks, which do not tell you anything. So, but we've discovered. So, if we have discovered, I believe a lot of lot of Indian youth will discover it. So, on that note, uh, if nobody has a question, I'd like to thank Sumedha ji and Dimple and everybody who's joined for this conversation. And thank you, Sumedha ji, and thank you everybody who's joined. Thank you, in. Wonderful experience. Thank you to everyone who uh, joined in. See you again. Um, yeah.